I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're on. What's up, everybody? It's your coach. Welcome to the, if you don't know already, the number one podcast in the world that's pushing positivity, authentically, real, not fake, not corny, just real, authentic, old school, new school positivity. If you're a fan of positivity and you haven't subscribed to the show, Please, right now, take your time, subscribe to the show, rate it for me, give me a feedback, I'd greatly appreciate it. In this episode of the Coach HP Show, the man, former FBI agent, attorney, has worked with the NFL, with the NBA. The world puts certain people in certain places, in times when we need them the most. And my man, Quentin Williams, is the guy for what he's doing right now. He has the D2C movement, dedication to community, working with educating the police, law enforcement, in doing things properly, in communicating in this episode, we talk about his upbringing, sports, love, having love for one another. Super excited. What a great conversation I had with my man, Quentin Williams, on the Coach HP Show. Let's go. We go three, two, one, boom, Quentin, we're on. Let me tell you something. There is, I have a belief, Quentin, that people hit certain points in their life for a reason and when they're really qualified. And there isn't a more qualified dude out there right now to be in the position that you're at right now. Did you ever think about that when you were young that you'd be in a position like where you're at right now? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the way I grew up, I, I I never knew I'd be doing anything close to what I'm doing now. I mean, I just wanted to get a job when I was a kid. I, was, I spent my first 17 years of my life on welfare, just looking around at folks who had jobs and saying, man, that's what I want to have happen is how do I get a job? I, I wasn't even thinking about purpose. But, you know, sometimes life has a way of leading us 
to where we should be and opening up those opportunities. And it's up to us to, to see that this is what awaits. And 1,000%. I can't agree with you more. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you were born in St. Thomas? Yes, St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. How was that vibe, man? How was that? Well, you know, I didn't spend much time there. My, my mother uh, went there to escape some, some pretty challenging situations back in New York. And she met my father. And my mother's a white Jewish woman. She met my father, who was a, who was a black Antiguan Caribbean man. And I was, I was the result of a short relationship they had. He took off when she, when she told him she was pregnant. And then she took us back to New York when I was four months old because it was just getting to be too much for her there after he left and the struggle she was going through. So I didn't spend a great deal of time there. I was born on the island, but I really grew up an, a New Yorker a because New York. that's, where we, that's where we came back to. Quentin, I'm Cuban. Cuban, we have the best of both worlds. We have the Europeanness of the Spaniards, but we also have the Caribbean and flair of the island. You know, we mm -hmm. have that rhythm. Unless you're from Africa, Cuba, African Cuban, then you have the Africanness and the islandness also. With you right now being New York, New York people I have so much respect for because I almost feel like you guys are smarter than us here in Miami because we're just too busy lying, getting good weather and stuff. And New York is just so much culture and stuff like that. How did that shape your success, man? Because not having a father, did you was the sporting world where you found your male role model, father figures? Did your mom double in both roles? How did you how did you accomplish that? The foundation was with my mother, really. She she just she's the most incredible person I've ever met. And she knows how to build relationships like nobody else. She is an expert at relationship building. And she passed that on to me and my younger brother. So we know how to build relationships. Um, I also, because of that, met a lot of people along the way who took me by the hand and kept me from making mistakes that would change my life in a negative way forever. Uh, I still made mistakes, but some of the mistakes that my friends were making, especially during the crack epidemic, I didn't make those mistakes and they paid a severe price for those mistakes. So it was a combination of just having my mother and then my grandparents next were, were, were incredible, even though they disowned us initially because of my mother being, you know, dating a, a black guy. They embraced us at some point. So they were a huge influence. And I had influences like Jason Brussman, who's an attorney who convinced me to go to law school. Each step of the way, I had somebody who was extremely or somebody's who were extremely influential in my life. And it helped me to overcome the challenges. I had the poverty and the dismay about so many things. I couldn't read really well until I was well into my adulthood. So how, did, how does a guy who no father in poverty, not able to read well, usually there's a uh, more than 50% chance that person is not going to be free for too long, will be in prison at some point. And I got through it because of these relationships that I gained. Quentin, that's why I think we should bottle your DNA, bro. And we should just like store that and send it to what makes you who you are because you're against the numbers. You're against happiness. Every, everything you mentioned there is a recipe for disaster. 
Little context on me, content on me. I'm nowhere near as smart as you are, nowhere near as accomplished, dude. Mm -hmm. I'm the biggest failure in the history of Miami baseball by far. But I, I'm a kid of – I always ask the father question because my dad prepared me for everything in life except to deal with him. So he was abused the hell out of me through sports, but everything else was, was perfect. I almost sometimes wish he was not around. I think I maybe would have been better than that. But I asked one guy, as, as I became this Coach HP guy probably three years ago, I, I go to him when I was with the Mets for a little bit. He was like my mentor, been around Major League Baseball for a while, for a real long time. And I go to him, Jousey, what makes me special, man? And he goes, Hector, you're a relationship guy. So you mentioned your mom with the relationship stuff, right? Let's talk about that because I'm almost to start petitioning that we should eliminate at least call it, uh, algebra and put in relationships, put in empathy, put in gratitude, put in delivery, put in how to deal with a disagreement. I think we should that should be mandatory in high school, at least for sure. But let's talk relationships. What did your mom have? Forget what she taught you. What did she have that made her great at relations? It's easy. This is this is that's such a great question. And I have such I have the answers at the tip of my tongue. I know it like the back of my hand. Love. She loves people. Loves people. She doesn't necessarily, hadn't necessarily loved herself. But she has so much love that she gives to people. You can just see it in her eyes. So when people meet her, they're attracted to her immediately because they see in her eyes how much she loves them, how much she loves humanity. She loves animals, pets. She loves human beings so deeply. So that is what it is. She she taught my brother and I to love. And I mean, it's it's the greatest gift one could give anybody. And that serves as a basis for everything that we've done because it's helped us to form our relationships that are genuine, they're sustainable. And we carried that both, my brother and I carried that into sports where we were both football players, ran track, and we, we formed this love with our teammates, family. So that's, that's the answer, love. Man, love is everything, huh? There is love. Football, what position did you play? I was, I was a running back and a safety in high school. And when I went to college, you know, I went to Boston College. I played with Doug Flutie for a couple of years. I was fortunate uh, fortunate enough to get a football scholarship at BC during some really good years. And I played cornerback. I played every position in the secondary. Right? I started out as a cornerback. And then I played some running back, too, um, while I was at it. So I was a utility guy. I, I was a special teamer. I, I wasn't the star player, but I was the guy who would – always recover fumbles on, on special teams and do stuff like that. And I, I, I just had, I had that will in that respect. I was never the greatest athlete on no. paper. On paper, I looked like a great athlete because I could run a four, three. I could, I could jump out of the gym. I was 40 inch vertical. I, uh, no matter what the, the test was, I would 
passed that test with an A plus. But there was something about being on the field that sometimes I, I couldn't translate that talent into the the inclination to, to break on a ball or do something like that at the college level. At the high school level, I was an all-state guy, so I was able to do it. But the college level, you need to step it up. And there was something about it. And I think it had to do with the, the deficiency I had with reading. I think that played a role in some way. Quentin, it's funny you mentioned that. Do you know who Robert Bailey is? Robert Bailey, the football player? I had him on the show last week. The football player is now the president of a Rosenhaus Sports. Two, he's a he's from Barbados. Mm-hmm. Kind of same story, you know. Same demeanor. Remind me a lot of his demeanor too. Two titles with Miami, Super Bowl with the Cowboys, Super Bowl with the Ravens, and same thing, man. We talked, and he goes. I asked him a question that he thought was the greatest question ever. I'm gonna ask it to you the same, man. When we're talking about your self-awareness to understand that you were maybe a little off, that you're like, dude, these guys are a little bit faster than me. And it ain't speed. It ain't effort. It ain't attitude. It's just something in me. Now, as you look at it as an accomplished adult doing what you're doing, because lawyers, they could be a ton of lawyers. But what separates you smart-wise and citizen-wise is there's not a lot of FBI agents. And the FBI is super, super, super picky on who they let into your thing. What do you think you established from that dude that was a cornerback saying, I'm just a little slow here, to be faster than every civilian in the real world? You know, I, somebody asked me, that's, a, that's such a great question. Somebody asked me the other day, what, what is it? Leslie Visser, she asked me. Uh, it was yesterday. She said, what, why... If, if you had all these deficiencies, how did you become successful? And and I think the reason is because I, I do have an ability to translate my talent into practical use, whatever my talent is. I, I'm not the most talented guy that was ever on a football field, but I had a way in high school to translate it into success. In college, I just it, I was missing something. But I also knew in college that I wasn't meant to be a football player forever. I was meant for something else. So I started to look ahead at what else it was I was going to do. By my junior year, I already knew I wasn't going to play football in the NFL. What was it that I was going to do? And on that quest, I went through this journey and the journey led me to what I'm doing today. It, it, it dropped in my lap what I was meant to do. And it's because pieces of me were put together and then I was able to translate it into the practical use of it. So I'm a decent speaker. So the speaking, the legal piece, the sports piece, um, I have friends, I build relationships. So everything, all of that stuff, I put into one barrel and it comes out in this way where I'm an educator now, I'm a speaker, I, I'm an attorney too, but I, I teach people how to build relationships because my mother is the best person in the world at building relationships and she taught me. I learned out of the womb from the, the best expert in the world how to do this. So I'm carrying on that legacy. See, that is awesome. That is awesome. I 
So I speak all over the country. Oregon State reached out to me in baseball when they won the national title 2019. And I told them, let's see if you agree with this. I go to them, if winning a title in 2019 when you guys are 20, 21, 19 years old is the highlight of your life, you're going to be a loser. <clears throat> and we're not preparing. Listen, we're not preparing. Forget black men. Forget Cuban men. Forget American men. We're not preparing men in general. Forget athletes of all backgrounds. We're not preparing them to deal with life as sports people, as business people, as human beings, as fathers, as boyfriends. We're not even talking about that because I, I felt that we were using athletes almost like, forget racehorses, because, you know, thoroughbred horses, at least when they're done, they get put out to stud and it's a great life. It's almost like we're greyhounds, bro. Like we run the race, run the race. We're not good anymore. And they let us go and we have no use in the world. And we and then what happens? Those guys only know one thing, sports. So they become these miserable coaches that they bring that down to kids. And I think the fact that you were able to call yourself out and say, listen, we got this far. This was awesome. Now, how can I pivot this into society and do now really well is a lot of my talks. I base it off that base it off relationships that when you're at that platform at Boston College, people are going to look up to you. It gives you the opportunity to build relationships that you could use later in life, man. That's why I love that you brought that up. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you, you have to have self-awareness. And I had self-awareness because I was like, I'm going to be a special teamer. I might play a little bit here at BC. We're on some pretty good teams. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to work like crazy to do the best I can with the realization that I need to look at my, my greater purpose. What is that purpose? So I started to look at it when I was about a sophomore, junior in college, just trying to understand what that purpose would be. I never knew it would be this. I, I was just, but I was aware that I needed to find it. And you have to be aware of that. You have to acknowledge that you do have a purpose. Everybody has a purpose. And a lot of times that purpose is right under our nose. We just fail to look under our nose because we're looking out so far because we think it's out there somewhere. We have to chase it, but it's right there. So for me, it was right there. And I was getting every step of the way. I was, I was getting indications that your purpose, you're on a quest to find your purpose. So I'm very fortunate, very blessed that it, it came to fruition and there's a need for it. There's a need for what I do, what we do, what dedication to community does, our organization, the people around us, just a blessed life. I can't agree with you more. We're going to get to that organization in a second. How did you cure yourself or how did you help yourself with the reading problem you said that you had? So I, um, I started, I, I was just reading voraciously and I was finding that I just was not able to put words together so I could recite words really well uh, phonetically I was I was you would have thought I was Shakespeare but I didn't understand what I was reading so what I did was when I was 21 I worked as a bouncer at a nightclub one of my colleagues one day told me that John F Kennedy read seven newspapers every morning before he started his day and I said you know what I don't like reading because I'm not good at it. 
but I'm just going to immerse myself. And I'm, I'm an extremist. Uh, people say Scorpios are extremists. Well, I follow that pattern if that's the case, because I'm a Scorpio. And I would just read maybe four or five newspapers every, every morning. And at some point, I started to understand words a little bit better. Two words at a time, three words at a time. I got to the point where I could understand sentences without having to read it again, and then paragraphs. And so it was just a building block. And now I carried over that voraciousness of the reading. So still reading all the time, but now I understand words because I just got better at it. And so now I read all the time and I enjoy it now. I didn't really enjoy it then because it was challenging. I enjoy it now. So it's one of those things. I don't know what it is to this day. I, I don't know if it was ADHD, if it is ADHD. Every now and then I'm reminded about it, though, because sometimes I will read something and I'll be like, I don't what, what did that say? And I have to read it again. And it reminds me of those days. Of those days, huh? Yes. <clears throat> you mentioned something there very interesting, <clears throat> something we share in common. So I was four years I started as a promoter and then I became director of VIP services for a club, a nightclub called Hyde and the Bellagio. Mm -hmm. The club business, super interesting, man, super interesting. <laughs> you as a bouncer, number one, what was the club that you bounced? And number two, what did you learn from that experience, man? So I couldn't get a job out of, out of, uh, out of Boston College. I, I couldn't get a job. I graduated with a degree in economics and I couldn't get a job. So one day I go to a nightclub in Manhattan, 1018. It was the biggest nightclub in Manhattan, 4,000 people. It was, it was huge. We, and the dichotomy was ever present. Like we would have in the same setting, we would have John Travolta, Michael Jackson, um, all, all these Mike Tyson, Eddie Murphy, they would all come there. And then in the same setting, we'd have the biggest crack dealer in America. They just they they just arrested him the other day, and his uh, and his under his pool he would have seventeen million dollars in cash. I mean, this wow. is the kind of thing we would have there. It was crazy, and like Vin Diesel was one of my my bouncer friends. He was there with us, um, so we we would uh, this this what it taught me. It taught me how to build relationships with people. And, and so 1018 was a great training ground for building relationships. I built relationships with everybody. In order to survive, I had to know that 17-year-old crack dealer well. I had to know him well because I wanted to make sure that he didn't do anything with his crew that was going to be unsafe there. And so built relationships. So everybody, whether it was the A-lister or that crack dealer, I built relationships with them. No, and this is why that prepared you too for what you do now because remember, you're a bouncer, you're the number one authority in the club. Everybody looks up to you. But you have two options. Either you're the cool bouncer or you're a bouncer that just wants to be rude and wants to have his point and unless you, they tip you, you're that guy. <laughs> you chose to be, you know what? I'm going to be smart. I'm in a top-notch place that can help me. Let me just be cool to everybody as long as they don't get out of hand and let's see what happens. And I think that right there is what we should be teaching kids the most, the most, the most, the most. Build relationships, be cool. Oh, wait a minute. You're a football player in Alabama. You got power. Be cool. You're a baseball player at Miami. Be cool. You're a bouncer in Las Vegas. Be cool. Watch how good things happen, man. We don't talk about that enough, Quinn. That's crazy. 
Yes, I agree. This is this is the foundation for life. Is we need each other. We do. We depend on each other. So how are we going to be able to coexist in a way that is fruitful, productive, and maximizes everybody's quality of life if we don't know how to build relationships? We need to build relationships. You're right. It should be mandatory curriculum. I think that relationship building and finance 101, how to how to write a check or how to balance a checkbook or whatever, you know, how to take care of a checking account. These are things that should be given. And they're not. They're not, they're not, they're not provided not. to high schoolers. They should be provided to every high schooler and then in an advanced way, every college student. That, I think, Quinton, I think that sex ed, bullying, we should have a machismo class. We should have a course on testosterone. We should have a course. I've I've studied this and I and I get this a lot. I became the kid whisperer, Quentin, and I receive about five hundred to a thousand DMs a week. Mm. Everything with from parents and teenagers with my success on social media. Everything from coach should my kid repeat the eighth grade to have had a couple people reach out to me, coach my my son Googled how to commit suicide. I, I want to come talk to you. And I've had people f fly two hours, five hours to come talk to me. And I go, listen, I'm not a professor. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist, but this is what I think. Yeah. I know the, they say the frontal part, especially of the male brain doesn't develop till at least we're 23, 24. Quentin, how tall are you? I'm, uh, I, I say I'm six one, but I'm about six. <laughs> like let's, say, let's say, let's say six one. Let's go with six one. You were probably that height since you were maybe a junior, senior in high school. Yeah. So you look like a man. Without knowing anything, you look like a man. So society, the world, your coaches, your teachers had an expectation of you that you weren't even close. And then we all do dumb stuff automatically because of everything we talked about. Impressing girls, relationships, impressing our friends, trying to be cool. So if nobody talks about that, and that isn't brought up, I'm not saying we're going to fix out of 100 kids, 100. But if we could fix 10, those are 10 now. We're not touching. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And it's not just those 10. It's 10 families. It's 10 neighborhoods. Yes. Yes. 10 yes, communities. Yes. So it with, could be the nation. Yep. 100%. So with uh, I'm lucky. I'm in a fortunate place that I work for myself. I'm Coach HP. So I don't have the corporate problems of oh i can't say this and i can't say that and i'll i i i'm very self-aware so i get a, a little get a lot of leniency because i'm cuban and when you're cuban you can say oh we're part of a uh, the race stuff bothers us too it affects us too so we get empathy from the black community but then not really because i'm a white cuban you know so it's like i have this this thing but i'm very honest and i base everything off feeling and a lot of people reached out to me when the baseball players, some of them started, they did the, the protest with, uh, that the NBA started. And I am, I was really unaware how much I live in this positivity world because I suffer from extreme positivity. So I'm like this 24 seven, but unless something gets brought to my attention, I'm really unaware of it. And a buddy of mine, has a baseball social media account that's very popular. And he posted the George Floyd thing and all and all these and made his comment about it. 
the amount of just bad comments and like, I don't want to hear about this. This isn't, uh, this isn't where I come to. I just come here for sports. I don't come to hear the truth. It's a lot of racism out there, man, which is crazy, which is crazy. I want to get your opinion on this. I answered, and you're the perfect guy to talk to this. They asked me what I thought about the players protesting. And I gave this answer. I said, number one, any kind of peaceful protest, I'm all for. Any type, any kind, any way that we can get athletes, people that have influence to speak their mind in a positive way, even though it might be in a negative situation, but in a positive way to encourage others, I'm all for that 100%. Then they asked me what the situation, and I said this, and it's so funny. This is the main reason why I wanted to talk to you. I go, okay, the police situation. You can't, you can't, you can't kill somebody unless you're, unless you're like, in my opinion, unless we're shooting at each other. You can't kill somebody for pulling them over. You can't kill somebody for talking back to you. You can't shoot at, you can't abuse somebody that doesn't treat you the way you want to be treated. That's number one. I think every human being can agree with that. But number two, we got to stop committing crime. Stop committing crime. Now, there's a lot of people that are being affected that are not committing crime, that are guilty for living while being black. Me guilty for, I fit the number one profile of a criminal. I have tattoos, I'm bald, I got a beard. And unless I come correct, which I do at life, I try my best 100%, stuff's going to not come go my way. So I said, one of the things my dad taught me, and people don't have that, is my dad always said with the police, it's yes, sir, no, sir. They, whatever they ask you, you do. But even then, it doesn't go people's way. But that's how I approach the whole thing. Because I come from a place of, like your mom, love. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed in my community was, it's almost like, oh, that's not my neighborhood. That's not my situation. That's not my problem. I go, well, you know when it's going to be your problem is when they do something to your kid. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to care. And that's not fair. Because... You got lucky, man. You're one of the few. You're one of the few that was raised by a single mom who the dad is not as good as Quentin is. And you look how you came out. Everything I attack, I attack from an empathy point of view. How do you view this? What, what's your opinion on this? That's one of the main reasons I, I, I had you on here, bro, because I wanted to know this. Well, with respect to the athletes, you know, I, I, I always say, for those who are critical of the athletes, because I, I, I support the protest. I support the protest by athletes. Um, when Colin Kaepernick came out, I supported it. When Colin Kaepernick said, Kaepernick said he was not going to register to vote, I didn't support that. I, I, I told his people that's not acceptable. He, he has to vote. It's the number one way to change things. When he wore the socks with pigs, I'm, I said, that's not it. You don't, that's not the way you do this thing. You were, you're doing it the right way by kneeling, by bringing attention to it, by speaking with knowledge about this. Um, and then so when, when folks say, well, I just don't like the way, you know, this disrupting the way the anthem is being played, all that stuff, I say, well, are you as concerned about that as you are about injustice? Are you con as concerned about injustice as you are about the flag and the way you think the flag is being disrespected? 
If you are, what are you doing about injustice? Can we all agree that there is a systemic unfairness that exists? Inequity. If Unless you're living on another planet, yes, the answer is yes, there are inequities. Not everybody is being treated fairly by the system. It's not individuals. It's not the Clarence Thomas who says, you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps because he made it. That's, that's anecdotal. Let's talk about the system. Is the system fair for everybody? If it's not, it needs to be corrected. So this is about correcting the system. Are you concerned about it? If you're not concerned about it, then I have a problem with you because that's what the athletes are protesting. They're protesting against inequity. And that's what we, it's a bigger issue than even law enforcement. Law enforcement, that's authority. It's boots on the ground authority, represents authority. So that's what is being, the protests are being staged against authority that treats folks from a systemic vantage point with unfairness. It's hard to argue against that. I mean, are you, as a Cuban male, less intelligent, less talented, less skilled, based on your Cuban heritage than I am as a guy who's of mixed race, black and white, or a, a guy who is white? No. We are human beings. We are not necessarily equal on every level, but the system should be treating us with fairness. You might be a better baseball player than me. I might be a better football player. That's, those are pieces. But as human beings, we deserve to be treated with fairness by the system. That's what this is about. I will debate anybody on this topic. You bring them to me, I'll debate them. I love it. Quentin, when you were in the FBI, did you see that, man? I'm sure you have to see guys that were that showed signs of like, oh, this this guy's up to no good. This guy's just did you see a lot of that? Yeah, there there are biases. We all have biases. And certainly um my some of my colleagues in the FBI had biases. Hey, listen, we all have biases. I have biases. Be based on my lived experiences. I, I have to check those biases. The, the important thing is that not that, oh, we have biases. How do we get rid of them? It's going to that's and that's not going to happen. We're not going to get rid of biases. We can counter them, though. We can counter them by being conscious of them. So, for example, if I'm walking across the street and I see some people who might have in the past scared me as a child. And if that bias comes up. What do I do? I say, be conscious of what you're feeling. Just acknowledge what you're feeling so that you can counter it. And that's how, you, how we deal with biases. We counter them. And then with our youth, we try to raise them without implanting biases in them. That's, that's a key ingredient for adults to youth teaching. Don't implant your biases into our youth. Allow that. Allow kids to develop the way they should develop. You mentioned something there interesting. So when you see somebody across the street that you're biased of, 
and you want to check yourself. Steps. I think it's like, okay, acknowledge what you're feeling, breathe, take it in. What else do you recommend? Uh, well, I, I would very quickly recommend listening to that person or some a person who perhaps has that char the characteristics that you are scared of. Right. So that and so as an example, um, I have I have a friend. I have a friend, and that friend is a biker. He has a Harley. He dresses like a biker. He is like tatted up. What you were talking. Sons of about. anarchy. Sons of yeah. anarchy. And and when I first met him, I had a bias. He's a white guy, you know, mid to late fifties. When I met him for the first time, I had a prejudgment based on what I had experienced in my life of him. But I listened to him. I got to know him. I learned about him. I understood his plight in life and who he was. And I found out that we are so much alike. And he's not what I thought he would be. He's actually a medical doctor. And so the, the, it, it, it spun me on my head when he told me he was an anesthesiologist because I was like, that's the last thing I would have thought when you walk through. But un, until I get to know you by listening, learning, and understanding, I will carry the bias into the situation. But what I did was I said, so in order to counter biases, I say to myself, I'm going to listen to this person and listen beautifully. Listen beautifully to who they are. And when I did that, I found out that we were so much alike. He's Jewish. My mother's Jewish. He's a biker. The tattoos on his arms, they're not anything other than the numbers that his father was branded with when he was in Auschwitz. They're the numbers that Hitler assigned his wow. father. Wow. So, I mean, just think about how deep that is. And my prejudgment of him could have gotten me to go in another direction with him and not even get to know him. And then we wouldn't be brothers today. Crazy. That's the difference. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> FBI, what's the coolest thing about being in the FBI, man? Well, for me at the time, it was having a badge, having a gun, having a bureau car, and walking around. I, I, I actually worked in jeans a lot, working in jeans, and just reflecting on my life and saying, how did I get here? Like, how did this happen? This is not supposed to be where I'm supposed to be. That's what I was thinking when I was there. Now, Wait, that did I you know, ever hold on one second before you get off that? Would, did you drive like an undercover car or would you drive like a, what kind of car would you drive? Yeah, it was an undercover car. Did you ever yeah. hit lights just for fun on people or no? Did I ever hit my lights? Yeah, just to <laughs> like. I, I did it one time on my block just to see when I was brand new. I put on a siren and, and the lights. I didn't realize that the siren was that loud and my neighbor was out gardening and she almost uh, she almost had a heart attack because it was so loud. Was it? What type of car? So, I never did that again. But what uh, type of car was it? Uh, I had a few different kinds. Um these like I had I had um like little sports cars. There were little little sports cars, a bunch of different little sports cars. Every every car we drove was kind of an undercover car. Whether it was a Taurus, I had um I had a Mercedes at one point. 
I had just a bunch, bunch of different cars. Yeah. Were you already a lawyer then or not yet? Yes, I was an, I was an attorney. I was, I was recruited out of law school, actually. Really? Yes. They recruited you or you went them? Well, they recruited me. I, I applied and then they, they recruited me um, because they wanted more people with my background. So it, it became, I was connected with people who were actively trying to get me in. What attracted you to the FBI? You know, they, when I looked at the application and some of the requirements, there was a physical fitness requirement. I usually kept myself, I kept myself in pretty good physical condition. Um, they liked attorneys and I was in law school and I was going to be an attorney soon. I thought my background, having grown up in Yonkers, New York, where I grew up, during the crack epidemic, all that stuff that I had seen, I thought that would be advantageous uh, for not just me, but for society. If someone in law enforcement has that kind of background, they bring a different perspective to the job and to the people whom they serve. So I thought I had some qualities that would make for a, a good FBI agent. And really, even though the only interaction folks on my block would have with it with law enforcement was when they came to get us. Of course, I um, I thought this was going to be a good opportunity because it had all of those different ingredients. When you got into law, what type of law did you practice? It was med mal defense. So I graduated law school and I went into the practice of law. Worked at a medical malpractice defense firm for less than a year while my application to the FBI was pending. And then I was called, I was called in. And so I, I told the people at the firm, I'm going, I'm, I'm out. Going <laughs> FBI agent. How long were you, FBI agent? Pretty cool. How long you with the FBI? I was only in for four, four, for four hours, for four years. I was in for four years and uh, two and a half of those years I was undercover. Nice dude. Coming out. You go back into the law world. How tough was that transition for you? Well, I was recruited by, I was still in government service because I was recruited by the U.S. attorney to be a federal prosecutor. So I, I became a federal prosecutor. So I was working with the FBI agents who were my colleagues before, but I was prosecuting the cases. And that was, that was a cool transition. I thought I'd be there for at least 10 years. But then the NFL recruited me and hired me, hired me to, to do something pretty special. How long are you still with the NFL or no? No, I uh, so I was with the NFL for two years, the NFL league office, and then and I was brought into during the White House years with uh, remember the Dallas Cowboys during the nineteen nineties. There was there were some issues with this house that they had. They rented yes. some of the players rented. Um, I was brought in for that purpose to be proactive with respect to the off field misconduct issues and to communicate those policies that we were creating to ownership on down to the players. And uh, so I was there for two, two years and I just traveled around the U.S. and the world. Uh, and it was a great opportunity. I was always on the road. But I, I, I was desirous of doing something different. I wanted to get into the business of sports. And I had that opportunity when I went to the, the Jacksonville Jaguars. They recruited me to, to work in the front office as an attorney, uh, ran a couple of departments, did some player contracts. And that was a great experience to see what happens at the team level as opposed to the league level. And I did that for three years before going to the NBA. And who were you with with the NBA? 
I was recruited by the NBA when they formed the Development League, which the NBA Development League, the D League. So I was with the D League, and I was the president of the North Charleston Logators, which was out of Charleston, South Carolina, basically. Nice. All that you were living in New York, or you would go to all these places? No, I was I was living in the South. When I moved to Jacksonville, I stayed in Jacksonville. That's so you that's live in I, Jacksonville. Is that your home? I lived I lived in Jacksonville for for three years. I lived in Charleston for two, and now I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. What a nice place! Huh? What a nice state, yeah. North Carolina. Oh, the Carolinas are gorgeous. They are, I mean, the most gorgeous states. Uh, there's so much that it has to offer because you get the seasons yet. Uh, it's nice. The, 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 the sunshine is out for most of the year. So I really enjoy being in the Carolinas. Dude, I went to school there for, for a year, for almost a year and a half. And it's beautiful. North Carolina is beautiful. Oh yes. yes. The, what you mentioned there is real interesting as you transition now and you became a speaker. What got you into speaking? I get asked a lot of questions about that. Coach, how do I get into speaking? A lot of kids. What made you go into speaking? How did you take that role on? You know, I've been publicly speaking for 11 years and some uh, 11 years for since I was 11 years old in some form. Uh, and it just developed over time. And I think it's the result of my journey. I just would tell my journey in, in some way or form. And it's evolved to the point where I'm able to integrate lessons for people into the, the speaking. So out of my journey come lessons, lessons that are both good and, well, they're all good, but based on some great things that happen and some mistakes that happen. And um, it's, uh, I've become very comfortable with it over, year, over the years because I'm 54 now. I've been doing this for over 40 years. But I see it as a necessity that we all tell our stories because I can learn from you so much based on what you've lived. And once we're gone, those stories go, unless they're chronicled. So I wanna do what, all I can do to let the world know that there is hope, there is a way, and I'm just one of many examples. Totally agree. Quentin, you said you were 54? Yes. You're a young looking dude, man. 54. Look at that. Let me ask you, now that you mentioned 54, I think me and you're rocking the same haircut. When did you start losing your hair? You know what? It started receding. I think when I was uh, in law school, I started to see it. And that could have been, I thought that could have been because of the stress. But then um, as, as it was, you know, receding a little bit, I just cut it really short. And then one day I went to a barber shop. And I said, yeah, can you just cut it short? And, you know, and he put a shaver to it and he started shaving it. I was like, oh, no, this is what I wanted. But then when I got up, I was like, you know what? It looks cool. Okay. Yeah, man. I'm good. I'm good. That was like in 2002 or something like that. I was like, that's that's all right. And from that point on, I, I hadn't gone back to a barbershop. I just shave it myself. I bring that up. Quinn, I had so much issues with my hair, man. I think my hair started, I started, my hair started in the crown up here, barbers at 19, stress, I think, of dealing with my dad, steroids, taking as a young athlete, wrong way, no effort, nothing. 
I started losing up here. Then I started losing. Uh, I started getting. What's this thing called, bro? Receding. Receding hairline. I had a widow's peak. Then I, I, so I got discovered by a casting director. You don't know this. I got discovered by a casting director. So, I, so I'm going to act. There was at the time. This is a mistake that I made. There was no balding actors that were leading men. I, go, I can't have a. This is why we got to prepare kids. Look at the mistake I made. I went to Bosley. I get a hair surgery, right? I get the hair surgery. I got this big scar in the back of my head that I used to tell people it was from a motorcycle accident. But no, it was because I did a hair surgery. And people don't know this that when you get hair surgery, that does, that's not 100%. You still not got it. Now you got to take Propecia, which that now lowers your testosterone, which that now does a million other things. Yes. And if I would have been, so you strike me as a guy that's always been comfortable with yourself. I wasn't, man. I had a bunch of identity issues because my dad enslaved me, controlled me. He yeah. thought if he could handle everything, my haircut, the way I dressed, everything, that I can, that I would be the perfect guy. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, just like you, I'm an extremist. I've never drank before in my life. I don't know what alcohol tastes like unless I kissed my wife when she drank or before that, girls that would drink. I have no idea what that is. Lucky enough, never done any drugs either. Don't judge anybody that has, but that's been my thing. That mistake that I made, I've spent so much time worried about my hair. I would put this thing called topics in. I had jet black hair. Just a nightmare. Imagine if I just would have shaved my head and said, this is who I am, how much better my life has been. And look how, look how crazy this is, Quentin. Who's the number one actor right now in the world? The biggest box office drop. The Rock. The Rock. What, what type of hair is he rocking? He's bald. Yeah. Vin Diesel, same thing. He same, did thing. same thing. If I would have done that, been myself, but no, I wanted to be so. So when I speak, I say that story all the time, man. It's yeah. just crazy. So yeah. big shout out to you for expect, uh, accepting <laughs> who you are. Oh, yes. <laughs> you were here in Miami. You were here in Miami. And how I saw you was. You were here doing something with the Miami Heat and the Miami police. Coincidentally, I happen to be very good friends with a gentleman by the name of Steve Stowe with the Miami Heat. <laughs> My brother, I saw, I saw him yesterday, coincidentally. I worked with his kid for a little bit. Great, great, great guy. He's been on this show. And then I'm having, I think next week, Francis Suarez, the mayor, on the show. Because I know his family very, very, very well. Before I get into what you're doing with that, I met you, I know who you are, through social media. We're here. This show exists because of social media. Yeah. Being 54, I'm just a little younger. I'm 41. I have the kind of the duality of understanding, living life when beepers existed and now with uh, <laughs> right. TikTok, right? Yes. <laughs> you now looking at this because we can't live in society today educate, bring people together, build relationships without understanding the use of social media. How have you adapted to that? And how do you view social media for your brand and for what you're doing? Uh, it's, it's something that's so important. It's vital. And at first I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't jumping in. Um, but I had a client who was all in on social media and he's the one who convinced me to get involved with Facebook. And then Facebook turned into Twitter. Twitter turned into LinkedIn. And we, we kept going. But it's free. It's free advertisement. If you use it responsibly, it's wonderful. And I tell law enforcement officers the same thing. I said, this, 
agents, every law enforcement agency should use social media to its fullest extent, because if you don't, the narrative that's going to be created is going to be the one that somebody else creates, not the one that you control. So you control the narrative and you control your brand and you can get information out to people and people can get to know you. And so I, I think that if it just has to be used responsibly, I mean, there's a lot of irresponsible use of social media, but it's just get, going to get bigger. Um, I mean, this is the beginning of it. We didn't have social media 20 something years ago. So this is the this is the beginning. We're going to be in a totally different place in 10 years with social media and it's going to be heightened. We're not going backwards with it. So let's so talk I'm about this. So that since you're all in and you're probably you're probably the smartest guy in the room, every room you go into, unless there's like these like real, real smart guys. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. So let's say we get rid of algebra. What else can we get rid of? And we got we got to put in social media training because this is what I tell people. I have people reach out to me. Literally right now, there's somebody almost doing a mocking version of me. Literally, guy created an account, an adult created an account imitating me and is friend requesting everybody that I know. And now I get now I get received 10 things a day. Hey man, you know who this guy is? And I say, I got nothing but love, but it gives me because I'm a positive person. Mm -hmm. People who wouldn't reach out to me usually don't now reach out to me and I get to interact with them for a little bit. Yeah. But I know as a 41 year old man how to deal with everything. Mm -hmm. But at 16, we're not. Oh no. Especially when it's public and it's yeah. known now when somebody's like they say, somebody's trying you, somebody's challenging you. I think we have to do a better job of preparing everybody of how to deal with social media. Yes. And maybe you could put that on one of your courses, man. I don't know. But, it, but that is, I do. Good. I do. You have, have to. It says, I don't, we don't, we don't, we don't bear down on a natural, you know, little fundamental tools, but in the macro pictures, we, we say you need to dive in head first with social media. So dive in. And then there are so many specialists who can come in and do that work, but just getting the buy-in is a big deal. That's huge, man. That's huge. Quinta, what's your favorite type? Two more questions. What's your favorite type of music? I like every kind of music, but you know, I mean, I'm Yonkers, uh, the Bronx. I love hip hop. Um, I love old school hip hop. Like uh, favorite any, old school hip hop person. Who do you like? Old school. Well, Biggie's not really old school. He's kind of old school. Um, no, I, I like I like where where it started. I like you know, Run DMC, Jam Master J, Cool L Cool J. I have a lot of admiration for him because he's done it over cent over, over decades. Cent Favorite over decades. L Cool J song? Doing it. Oh, look at you, huh? Doing yeah. it. Look at you. I love it, man. Quinton, when you're here, when are you coming back to Miami? Uh, we'll be back in January. So. Um, Look, looking at the third week in January onward, and and then I think we, you know, there's a good chance we'll be back for a very long time, uh, coming I, back. I think. Listen, I first of all, I can't thank you enough for for spending the time with me. I think you're a guy that gets, especially now as you become more and more and more and more people become aware of you, doing interviews, doing podcasts, and and I want to make sure when people sit down with you that they 
ask the right questions and they get the right stuff because a lot of people in the interview world now that it becomes real popular they like get like around the point but they don't attack it and you're a guy that had so much wealth in knowledge with your unique background that I, I love 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 that so I want to thank you enough for that is there any questions man for me before we go anything I can help you with well you know here here's here's what's so so fantastic about social media and so fantastic about what we have as tools here. A guy like you can get his story out on a daily basis and inspire a world of people to do things based in, um, even if there were challenges, like you had some major challenges as a child. A lot of people don't overcome those challenges because they don't see the hope. But when they see somebody like you, those people who are going through the same issues, being abused by parents or an uncle or an aunt or somebody, and they hear you tell with transparency and vulnerability your pain, they hear your pain, now they connect to you, and now they feel like, oh, maybe I can be somebody, maybe I can do something. I don't have a question for you, I just have a statement. You know, just thank you, keep doing that. Because that vulnerability and pain that you're expressing, it's changing lives. And, and let's take the S off of that. If it just changes one life, what does that mean? Again, it means you're changing a family, a neighborhood, a community, maybe even a nation. So, so thank you for what, doing what you're doing. And I hope that what you do inspires others to do the same thing. You're the man. It's, it's funny you said that when... When I moved to Los Angeles, I lived in a car for six months. Yeah. I didn't know anybody. I would shower, shave at the Equinox in West Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I always, and it was, and I thought moving in January, I thought it'd be sunny California. And it was freezing. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> freezing in the Hollywood Hills. But I always, there was no social media. There was no smartphone. So I couldn't go on YouTube and download and watch the, the basketball game in the middle of the night. It was just literally my brain. Yes. And I learned when you're getting abused in your house, you don't have a TV in your room and your dad's with you 24-7 because that's how my dad did it. You learn a mindset and you learn the mindset of only two things you can control is effort and attitude. And then building the relationship. So I did that. When you come here to Miami, I want to support you. Anything I can do, any awareness I can bring to your cause, anything I can do speaking-wise, whatever it is to get involved, you can count on me. I give you my word. Well, Steve and I will invite you to the sessions. Come, my come, to a, come to one of our sessions, and that would be great. It would be great to see you in person. That's my guy. That's my guy. Quinton, thank you so much, my brother. You have a good day. Okay, we'll be in touch. All right. God bless you. Thank you. Likewise. Guys. Likewise. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Boom. There it is. Man, I can't thank you guys enough for listening to the whole episode. Again, please subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Can't thank Quentin enough for coming on the show. Remember, guys, forever, keep going hard and do your thing.